You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Morgan. Stevens. It's so fun to have you up here today together again at last. Yes. It's super fun. Are you ready to do this? I am ready. And again, we're glad to be with you here today. If you're here at our North Campus for our 11 a.m. or 1230 service, you're watching this on video, watching us on video because we really wanted to be present at our South Campus for at least a portion of this series. So that's where we'll be for the 11 o'clock down there. Uh, But I'll be back here next week for the conclusion of this series. I hope to be here with you. And of course, last thing, happy Hispanic Heritage Month. That runs, of course, September 15th through October 15th. Yeah, all right. Okay. Here we go. Our scripture reading today is Ruth 3, 1 through 13, and I will be our scripture reader. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer. Good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Amen. Amen. So, have you ever been in a situation with a friend or maybe a former friend where it's just difficult to even be in the same room with that person? Same. (laughs) Many years ago, I walked into um, a national leadership meeting in our larger ministry circle and sitting quietly in the back of the room was a man, a former leader, who had hurt a lot of people, including myself. And in that moment, I felt a lot of things. I'm a very feely person. The primary thing I felt was anger. (laughs) 
And I was really upset. I was concerned that his presence indicated that he would be in leadership again. I was concerned that if he were in leadership again, people, myself, people I loved would be hurt again. Later that week, I called one of um, our older, wiser friends, who was also one of Morgan's mentors, and asked if I could meet and talk with him about the situation. And he let me come over to his house, and I sat on his sofa, and I went off. I vented all my feelings very vulnerably and all my concerns, and he just let me, and he empathized with me because the truth was he had been hurt by that man too. And after I said everything, he then explained to me the reasons and the things that had happened that brought that man into that room while he had been there. And he admitted to me that he had no idea if this man would ever be allowed to have any leadership authority again. And then he said that he hoped he would, though. And then our mentor, one of our mentors, preached the single best sermon I've ever heard in my whole life in one sentence when he said, I hope he can be fully restored to leadership because at some point we're either people who believe in redemption or we aren't. And that's so good and it's so true. When we're faced with sin and brokenness and offense and wounding, we're either people who believe in redemption and people who believe for and work for redemption, or we aren't. Yeah, don't you love that? I love that. And of course, in that moment on that couch, we said, you know what? You're right. You're right. We hope we and he can all get there together and I'm happy to say that we all did. God did a miracle in all of our relationships and we all got there together. But before we got there together, we had to make a choice together, a choice to believe what we find here in Ruth 3, what we're gonna talk about today. Not that there, there aren't things like accountability or safety or distance or repentance that shouldn't be considered or enforced in relational context, but we're not talking about those things first. Uh, When there's a gap, between us, we're just talking first about being a people who believe what Ruth 3 lays out for us today, a belief in the power of redemption. Do you believe it? Yeah, between peoples, cultures, uh, friends, is it even possible? Ruth 3 says, yes, it is. It's actually one of the main themes of the book, and we wanna take a look right at it today. We're gonna see today that redemption between people, friends, communities can happen through three powerful truths that were shown. We're gonna look at them in order together, oh yes. Number one, we're gonna see how communities bring out the best in us, that redemption's possible because friends tip the scales toward us, and finally, redemption's possible because self-giving words change everything around us. Y'all ready? Yes, here we go. Redemption in your world is possible because number one, communities bring out the best in us. Okay, so in the book of Ruth, if you're just joining us for this series, I'd encourage you to listen to the other sermons on the podcast, but we have a young Moabite woman and an aging Jewish matriarch who form an unbreakable friendship against all odds, and Naomi, who was from Israel, let's remember, migrated to Moab with her husband and sons. Her son married Ruth. Husband and sons have all died, and 
Naomi has decided to come back to Bethlehem and Ruth has chosen to go with her. And they're there to find a new life with a new faith in a new land for Ruth. When they arrive back in Bethlehem, they're in need of food. So Ruth goes out to a field, a random field, and she starts picking up leftover grain. And it just happens to be, as we heard last week, the field of Boaz. And he's a relative of Naomi's which made him eligible to do something remarkable in their culture. Their familial connection made it possible by Jewish law for Boaz to not only buy back all the family land that they lost when they left Bethlehem the first time, but to bring back and restart Naomi's family line. Naomi knows this, and it's why she says what she does to kick off chapter three of Ruth when she says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, whose women you have have worked with, is a relative of ours. From there, Naomi basically sends Ruth on a mission to propose marriage to Boaz, and it's very exciting. And uh, it's very countercultural for the time, subversive even. But Naomi (coughs) knows that if Boaz, their special relative, says yes to this plan, that she and Ruth will be rescued and redeemed. She is a woman who believes for redemption. But everything hinges, of course, on Boaz choosing to say yes to the provision held out in the Old Testament that someone like Boaz could act as the guardian redeemer or Goel and marry Ruth and restore the family line. All right, so that's the story. Let's pause here and point this out. That communities... In their structures, I got a floppy watch here. All right, it's going to be a distraction. Here we go. Fixed it. Yes, Lord. Uh, communities, redemption. communities, and redemption for the watch. Communities and their structures can bring out the best in us. Communities and participation in those godly structures can bring redemption to us and through us. That's part of what we're being shown here because here in Ruth 3, God's creation of the position of the guardian redeemer, which was a a legal position created to be lived out within the community of Israel, of the people of God, that position offered Boaz the opportunity to bring redemption into the world, oh, but only if he chose to participate in it. A few years ago, it was a researcher named Robert Putnam, and he wrote a fascinating Massively detailed book, here it is. It's called American Grace, How Religion Unites Us and Divides Us. And he did a huge survey along with his, his partners, and they asked Americans of all backgrounds lots of questions about their faith like this. How often do you pray? Uh, how often do you read your holy scriptures? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in heaven? How much do you give financially? How much do you serve in the community? And what he found was this that there was virtually no difference in behavior between people of faith and atheists unless the people of faith were deeply involved in a community of faith. In other words, a person's individual beliefs overall made little to no difference in their actual behavior. The only people who lived like people of faith were those involved in a community of faith. As moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt put it, he looked at Putnam's survey and he summarized the survey like this. He said the only thing that was reliably and powerfully associated with the moral benefits of religion was how enmeshed people were in relationships. What matters 
are the friendship and group activities carried out within a moral matrix that emphasizes selflessness. That's what brings out the best in people. Mm. He said, he found what made the difference in people's lives was belonging, not just believing. Now you might say, Morgan, I'm too busy for all of that. I'm way too busy to be enmeshed in a matrix of moral selflessness. You know? <laughs> I'm too busy to be you know, around on the regular. And to that I would say, I know you are. We all are. Yeah. And actually, at some point, that's part of the problem. Well, let me try to show you why. You've likely heard that over the last 25 years, roughly 40 million Americans have left churches. Why? Well, we've looked at it before. There are lots of reasons, but here's, here is perhaps the biggest reason and the most surprising reason. Another new book called The Great De-Churching. Uh, the authors interviewed 7,000 Americans who have left churches and not gone back. And a man by the name of Jake Medor, he's the editor-in-chief Christian writer of Mere Orthodoxy. He summarized that book like this. It's a longer quote, hang in there. He said, the book raises an intriguing possibility. What if the problem isn't that churches are asking too much of their members, but that they aren't asking nearly enough. The great de-churching finds that the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life, or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. But a vibrant, life-giving church, of course what Mosaic hopes to be, requires more, not less, time and energy from its members. It asks people to prioritize one another over career, to prioritize prayer and time reading scripture over accomplishment. This may seem like a tough sell in an era of de-churching. If people are already leaving, especially if they're leaving because they feel too busy and burned out to attend church regularly, why would they wanna be a part of a church that asks so much of them? Although understandable, that isn't quite the right question. The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. Last paragraph. In the Gospels, Jesus tells his first disciples to leave their old way of life behind, going so far as abandoning their plow or fishing nets where they are, and if necessary, even leaving behind their parents. A church that doesn't expect at least this much from one another isn't really a church in the way Jesus spoke about it. Wow. All right. Whether you agree or not, I'm going to ask for a little hand clap because at least I read that pretty well. All right. This is why we ask you to do stuff like get involved, serve, give, be involved in a community week in and week out. Communities, the point is, can bring redemption. Communities can cover a multitude of sins. Communities can bring out the best in us. But only 
when and if we participate in them. Boaz was offered the opportunity to participate in his community in a sacrificial way. What's he gonna do? Oh, we're not gonna look at that quite yet, but we will look at it before we're done. Number one, the point is redemption is possible because communities can bring out the best in us. But second, the power of redemption is also possible when number two. Friends tip the scales toward us. So before we move on, I just want to say there is no one who preaches big church vision quite like Morgan. I just, you're so good at that. Thank you for the golf clap there. Yeah. That said, if that overwhelmed anyone or intimidated you by the amount of work it would require to, you know, redeem a city, right all the wrongs of injustice, And, you know, even to feel like you could belong somewhere where you're the only person like you, or maybe just where there are so many people unlike you, different age, different generation, different ethnicity, different national origin, different language, different socioeconomic level, all the things that can so easily feel like off-putting. I just want you to know I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you, because when I'm given the choice, (laughs) I don't know why I married him, when I'm given the choice between going big or going home, I'm going home. (laughs) Home is cozy, home is safe, home is where my heart really is. And I just think we need to schedule naps in as we plan the redemption of all things. And thankfully, the connection The connection between rest and redemption is a major theme of the book of Ruth. Aren't you glad? It's not all work, guys. We see it right here in Ruth 3.1 where we find Naomi confidently planning their redemption and how to rescue Ruth when she says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now the word home here is the Hebrew word manoach. And it also can be translated as rest and is in some translations, but Manoach implies security and tranquility. Isn't that nice? Like those two things together. Ruth 3 is actually the second time Naomi tells Ruth she wants her to find Manoach. The first time is in Ruth 1 when she tells her to go back home. Go home to Moab. Don't come with me. Naomi's desire to find rest for Ruth shows us how friends tip the scales toward us when they create spaces of rest for us. About 20 years ago, I met my friends Brett and Melissa Milliken. When they joined this church, I'm going to cry if I look at him. So, um, when they joined this church, and it was back before any of us had children, before we really knew how to actually be adults, we were not adults. Um, in 2001, we were young, none of us had family in Austin, and we became each other's family. And Morgan and Melissa, they just clicked so well because they both shared this penchant for being disciplined, great people who love God, have noble character, and just never spend any money. Whereas Brett and I, we were really fun people who love God and enjoyed spending money on home renovation projects and expensive appetizers, which they found unnecessary. 
so true. We all worked for this church for a long time, and during a lot of that time, there were some choices that were being made upstream from us in leadership that made our lives tricky and painful, and a lot was stacked against us back then. But like Ruth and Naomi, we had each other, and we continually offered one another places to rest in our friendship. For example, once when I was nine months pregnant, Morgan was out of town, and I needed to move a giant double dresser from the guest room into my bedroom. Very important to do it that exact night <laughs> while my two toddlers were asleep in their bedrooms. So I had those little furniture moving pads that make it possible to move like 10,000 pounds with your pinky. And so I was sliding this dresser across the carpet into our bedroom and um, what happened next, we can blame on the nesting instinct or you can just go home knowing I'm real dumb. I got myself trapped in the alcove outside of our, our bedroom because the dresser was between the corner of the alcove and the door and it got jammed. And I didn't have the upper body strength to move it any further, nor did I have any abdominal muscles at the time. So I couldn't like hike myself up on top of it to get over it. And Morgan would not be back for a few days and surely I would need to eat at some point and the children would wake up and you know need me to take care of them. So. I thankfully could reach our cordless landline phone, and I still knew people's phone numbers, so I dialed Brett's number, and I was like, so I have an, a situation. So after he broke into our house, <laughs> Brett found me trapped in the alcove, and every preacher loves an audience that can't leave, and so he proceeded to preach a great sermon about how stupid I was, and he said something along the lines of, why didn't you just call me in the beginning? You are pregnant, I would have come and moved this for you. Call me next time. Pretty sure he regretted saying that, because we've been friends a long time since that, and I've called Brett a lot of times for help. He's always helped me because he's my friend. And I'm not the only person Brett Milliken offers rest and home to. To say that Brett is a good friend is an understatement and it doesn't adequately express the fullness of what it means to have Brett in your corner that you're trapped in. <laughs> a few years after that moment, um, Brett, Melissa, Morgan, and I sat at a park in Georgia. We were all on vacation, and we sat at the park talking and dreaming about what it would be like to lead a church together. We've told this story a lot of times about how Morgan and I came back from Nashville to help lead Mosaic. And it is true that we came back because we felt like it was God's will for us. But the part of this story that really never gets told is that we also came back because Brett and Melissa were here and we wanted to do church. We wanted to find rest. We wanted to offer rest to our friends. Here's the thing about good friends. They tip the scales 
in your favor, right? They offer to help carry the load that's real heavy on your back. And everything that's stacked against you, they come and they help you sort it out, move it, take care of it. It's true about Brett and Melissa Milliken, and it's true about Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Because while many things in the world have changed in the centuries since Naomi and Ruth's narrative played out, our need for friends who want to find rest for us has not changed. With all our modern innovation, technology, medicine, education, we still have not found collectively a way to solve the problems stacked against us, right? Suffering, war, natural disasters, oppression, poverty, hatred, illness, hunger, the list goes on. Do you have a friend today who's stuck somewhere, who's struggling, who needs the scales tipped in their favor? I just would encourage you to reach out to them and offer some rest in some way. Be practical, be empathetic, be encouraging. Tell your friend that you believe in the power of redemption, and that God can do for them what they need. Because despite all the unjust, painful circumstances Ruth and Naomi faced, they experienced redemption because they tipped those scales toward one another. Because when it was all stacked against them, right, Ruth clung to Naomi, Ruth reached out for Boaz. Naomi found a way to ensure Ruth would find home, Manoah, rest, security, tranquility. And Boaz, he would make a choice and he would say some words that wove all their lives into God's incredible redemptive plan, which brings us to our third point. Yeah, that number three, redemption is possible because we're going to see right now that self-giving words change everything around us. What do we mean? Let's go back to our story. Uh, after that fateful day, Carrie mentioned it, when Ruth went out to glean in the fields to gather grain, and Naomi finds that it was Boaz's field into which Ruth went, Naomi said this. He said, that man is our close relative. He is one of our, here it is, guardian Redeemers, what's that? Well, there's an interesting law back in the book of Leviticus. You may have heard of it. It's something called the Year of Jubilee. It was given by God to restrain poverty in the land. And so every 50 years in the Year of Jubilee, the land that was sold had to be sold by a family in poverty would revert back to that original family. Yeah, but before the 50 years were up, the land could be redeemed earlier by someone named the Goel, a ransomer, a redeemer who could buy back the land and allow the family to reclaim what had been theirs and give them a future. And so when Naomi realizes that Ruth has been out in the field of Boaz, she realizes, oh, that man could redeem us. He could buy us out of poverty, but would he do it? Because in order to do it, not only would Boaz have to spend his own fortune to buy the land for Naomi, he would have to marry a widow in her family, and their name, the name of the child that is, the name of the child would have the name of the dead man's family, not his own name. This is something called leveret marriage, and leveret marriage cost 
the Redeemer, his name, in a society in which your name was everything. His own line would end if he did this. So Naomi looks at herself, and she knows she's past childbearing age, so who could Boaz marry that could produce an heir for the family? It's Ruth. But Ruth is a Moabitess, someone who, for all Boaz knew, served foreign gods, and therefore Ruth, neither Ruth nor his children, will be able to serve God for the next 10 generations in the temple. Who would do such thing? Would Boaz? That fateful night, Ruth goes and he find, she finds Boaz asleep after a long day's work, wakes up and he sees her there and she says this, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman or guardian redeemer. In those days, that meant marry me. Mm -hmm. Take me to be your wife. Put a ring on it, Boaz. (laughs) Cover me with your wealth to redeem our family. What would Boaz say? Would he reject her, kick her out, call her like a gold digger from a foreign nation. No, instead he looks at her beautifully and ironically, he says the same words to her that Ruth had said to Naomi earlier in the chapter. He said, I will do everything you ask. Ruth had said the same words just a few verses earlier to Naomi's plan. Ruth had said, I will do everything you ask of me. And Boaz to redeem Ruth's life, says, I will do all you ask. See, he said, yes, he chooses to participate in the community of God in this way, and next week, we'll see, he marries her. Oh, yes, he marries her. And at the moment that he marries her, all his wealth, which she had never earned or worked for, all of his wealth, legally and automatically, became hers for forever. In other words, Ruth's Debts weren't just paid. No, Ruth got a whole new life. She has been redeemed in every way. And so to be people who believe in the power of redemption means we are people who speak the same life-giving words. I will do all you ask. So I will do all you ask. When we say and live words like these, we sacrifice our time, our schedule. We give our money We use our influence so others don't spend their lives gleaning for scraps. Doing all someone asks might ask of us refusing to distance ourselves from people who don't look like us, who don't sound like us, who are a different age than we are, who might vote differently than we do. And if you're feeling like, If I say I will do all you ask to my friends, to my coworkers, to my neighbors, that feels really uncomfortable and vulnerable. I would say yes. I bet it does, it does for me. But here's the deal. (laughs) The entire Christian faith actually rests on the idea and the truth that redemption is costly. We can't have redemption without a cost being paid. And until you and I are willing to give up the kinds of things our culture prizes most of all, we will never scratch the surface of what Boaz does in the book of Ruth. And why, it is hard to understand sometimes why a person would be willing to give up so much. In part, he did it because he loved Ruth. In part, 
He did it because he respected Ruth. He honored her as a woman of character, as a person of value. And love and respect and honor and value, it inspires us when we see those things in people, when we feel those things toward people, it inspires us to sacrifice and to say words that will be costly to us but bring redemption and restoration to them. And so if you're wondering where we get the power to do this, this impossible seeming thing, this costly thing, we have to not just look at Boaz, who was a man who lived, loved, died, but we have to look beyond Boaz, right, to the person Boaz's life points to, to the one who many years later would bear all of our cost and redemption and pay all of that with his life so that he could love, respect, honor, value us himself. How can you see him like this? Because there is someone who has come and looked at you gleaning scraps of grain in your life. There's someone who's come and seen your spiritual poverty and said, stay with me. There is someone who looked at you and said, you know what, they don't have what it takes to pay the debt they owe, but Jesus Christ said, I will pay. And like Boaz, Jesus not only pays your debt, but then he pulls you into his life so that all of his wealth becomes yours. And like Boaz was to Naomi's family, Jesus is to the human race. He's our flesh and blood. He's become our kinsman redeemer. He didn't just look at us and say, you pay the debt the law of God demands. No, Jesus is the true Boaz who has shaped human history through the cost of his own life and the power of his own redemptive heart, the kind of heart that didn't care about the cost that it took to redeem your life and your family even from another race and another culture besides his own. And so let's close by saying this. If we want this city to go forward, which we do, we want this nation to go forward, which we do, this church to go forward, which we do, we have to have a vision for redemption, a heart that bears the burden and pays the cost. And you're not gonna get it from just looking inside you because that'll end real quick. How many of you know? You have to look at the greater Boaz, Jesus, who has loved you infinitely more than even Boaz loved Ruth. See, redemptive, multi-ethnic, multi-generational community. It's so costly, but I wanna tell you today, I'm glad to pay. I'm glad to pay along with you. I'm grateful to pay, and here's why. Because what we have together, oh, it isn't just costly. What we have together, hear me, is priceless. Amen. It's priceless because it cost the prince of heaven his blood to accomplish this, to bring us together, to redeem us, and yeah, even to make us friends. Let me take a moment and pray for us as we begin to close. Lord, I'm asking you today that you would, in every person's heart and life who has need of this, of the power of redemption, Lord, above and beyond even what they've heard, said, or sung today, Lord, that you'd come and meet them in that space today in a powerful way. If you're here and you're saying, man, I need redemption in a relationship, would you just raise your hand real quick? Lord, I thank you for these. Yes, with the hands raised. Lord, we need it. All across this room, between friends, parents, family, loved ones. Lord, for every person with their hand raised especially, I'm asking that this same power would flood their hearts. Even as they say you, see you saying, I'll do all that you need. I'll do all that you ask. In turn, that would free us and empower us to say and do the same. Lord, as you flood our community and our church with this power, the power of redemption, we pray these things today in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.
and amen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store. 